Hello and welcome back to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and I'm in, back in Palmerston North uh, New Zealand today with Rido, the Reverend Ian Reid of King's Grace Presbyterian Church. Rido, hi, welcome back to the show. Hi Brent, how are we today? We're well and we're much better since we're now sitting on non-squeaking chairs, which I think we suffered from in the last podcast. We whipped the, changed the chairs over midway through. Now, today we're back. Let's be honest about it. Today we're back in the power gospel of Mark, and gosh, I last enjoyed I enjoyed our discussion last time about Jairus' daughter mm. and uh, the girl who died and was raised by Jesus. So much emotion and so much drama. Um, we're looking at Mark chapter six, verses one to thirty-one today in a podcast we've called "The Power Comes Home." Now, Ian, what did we see last time in chapter five? So we saw in chapter 5, we have at the beginning of chapter 5, Jesus uh, kind of heads off into the Gentile territory and uh, meets the the guy with all the demons and and heals that guy. Then he heads back over again. uh, And who does he meet there? He meets uh, a young, well, he meets Jairus, the the synagogue leader, who says, come and heal my daughter, she's really sick. And on the way there, they meet a lady who's been bleeding for 12 years and then they go and see Jairus' daughter who's already dead. They'll be told, told he's dead. But the whole way through, we see Jesus say two things. Don't be afraid. Just have faith. Uh, and in both circumstances, Jesus does the healing uh, of these two women. Now, what did chapter 5 of Mark tell us about the spiritual state of Israel? We have particularly, I think, with these two women, a picture of what Israel is like. You, they're... They're dead, basically. And so you've got the, the the woman has been bleeding for 12 years. Then we're told that Jairus' daughter is about 12 years old. So there's this kind of allusion to the 12 there, maybe the 12 tribes. And both of them are unholy, kind of the lady and her bleeding. Uh, the significance of that is death. Uh, and then the, the young lady who's sick, she actually dies. And so you've got this sense that the spiritual state of Israel is that it's dead. Yes, and, and unclean in some sense, and, yeah. and impure. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, so today we're... Um, oh, this is a fabulous This is a fabulous passage. Chapter 6, uh, we're going to look at verses 1 to 6 first. Jesus rejected at Nazareth. This is what happens when you go back to your hometown. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? And you just see them dismissing him. The local boy, who's, who's he here to tell, us about, <laughs> tell yeah. us about anything? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villagers teaching. So not much healing, but a lot of teaching going on. Now, what happens when the power comes home here then, Ian? Not a lot, is it? <laughs> Basically. There's not, a lot, there's not a lot of power in the hometown, I don't think. No, no. And it seems to be a bit of a problem here, doesn't it, that when Jesus goes out, uh, verse 6 is really amazing. And he was, well, it's interesting. He was amazed mm. at their lack of faith. You know, he kind of 
uh, that usually it's the other way around, that, that everyone's amazed at Jesus. That Jesus is amazed at these people. And what is he amazed at? That they've just got no faith at all and that because of that he's not able to do anything. Yeah, fascinating, isn't it? In, in, in what ways does Jesus' hometown show total contempt for him? Well, just the, the way that he's referred to, you know, kind of, isn't he, you know, kind of this, this, the brother or the sister or whatever, you know, kind of whatever it is that we know who you are, you know, you're nothing really. Yeah, he's related to such and such and, and aren't his sisters here and this is the carpenter. What, what, what would a person that works with their hands know about anything? But I wonder also you've got the, the sense of, you know, the scandal between Mary and Joseph. You know, oh, kind of, okay, I if that's yes. Hanging, I hadn't, over it as well, yeah, possibly. Yeah, I, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, pro- you could be right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, oh, yes, my very next question, actually. Yeah, is there, is there a reference to illegitimate lineage here, do you think? Yeah, I, won- I don't know, but I, I do wonder if that's, that is the case, that there is kind of a, the scandal kind of hanging over it. And, and how short, how could this, you know, kind of, this boy be the one that, that he's claiming to be and do all these amazing things? Surely not. Mm. Why do you think these people take such offence at Jesus? Well, he's familiar. I, I think that's that's the key thing there is that he's familiar to them and you, you surely nothing miraculous can come out of the familiar. You know, it's got to be something spectacular, amazing. You can't just be a normal kind of person mm. in any way. Why does Jesus respond the way he does there in verse 4? Well, he... He's just kind of saying what's happening, isn't he? Only in his hometown, uh, among his relatives and his own house, is a prophet without honour. I think he's just telling the truth. And, and it's probably, when, when you look at the prophets, it's interesting that they're usually, they're not sent to their own people. They're usually sent somewhere else. So a prophet from Judah will be sent uh, to the northern tribes and, and the opposite sometimes happens, uh, that they're not usually sent amongst their own people. Sometimes it happens, but not always. And we've talked about this a bit already, but why can't Jesus perform any miracles in in Nazareth? Well, it is interesting, isn't it? That because you'd think it's all reliant on Jesus, he does some. Uh, you know, in verse five, we're told that he does does a few things, but it has to do somehow do with their faith. Now, it's not their amount of faith. I don't think it's you know kind of that they that they. Um, you know, the, your abundance of faith somehow allows these things to happen. But it's the belief that Jesus can do them. I think that's the bigger thing. Mm. And uh, we've already addressed this to some degree, but why is Jesus amazed amazed at their lack of faith? It's not, not the response you would expect, particularly from people you know. That you, you would expect the opposite, don't you? You know, it's kind of... You expect, uh, you know, kind of a, a hometown, hometown crowd. Yeah, 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 kind of welcoming. He's the hero, you know, coming yeah. back. But it's the opposite. Um, and you know, I don't know if Jesus was expecting that, but it, it's definitely the reception that he gets is the opposite to what what we wanted. Yeah, let's support the hometown team. Well, they certainly don't support him, do they? No, no quite the opposite. Okay, let's read on chapter six, verses seven to thirteen. Uh, and we carry on. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and give them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Now, so we see the power going out here. Now, what does Jesus say to the 12 disciples here, Ian? 
well, what are they to do? You know, they're to kind of basically take nothing with them. You know, verse 8, take nothing for the journey except a staff, no beer, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. You know, what are they, why are they doing that? Um, it's their reliance on God here, here is, is kind of the big thing, I think. Um, but it, it is interesting that they, they can't, you know, take anything with them. And when they stay, uh, verse 11, and if any place will not welcome you, uh, you or listen to you, shake off the dust, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. You know, it's part of the judgment coming against Israel is through these these twelve disciples. And dust associated with the curse of the of of the fall too. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Just literally should shake it off your feet. And probably that's why they have to wear sandals. I don't know. Some some significance probably. Why does Jesus tell them to go out two by two? It sounds a bit like the animals going into Noah's Ark. Don't know why it's two by two, possibly, um, for, for that reason, but maybe safety, maybe you just kind of, you know, being together with someone else, you know, gives you courage. Mm. Or the church is going to become a bit like Noah's Ark, carrying people to safety through the waters of baptism or something, I'm mm. sure, something like that, maybe. Why does Jesus, uh, we've probably already dealt with this, why does Jesus tell them to travel so light? Don't know. Maybe it's just because of, of you know them needing to move around, needing to go from place to place. That it's not a, a kind of you know carrying lots of stuff. I think also I do wonder if it's kind of a you know you're not you're not in this for the long haul. This is a short kind of journey that you that you're taking, uh, and it's it's kind of this is not the the coming of the kingdom. You know, kind of you are you are proclaiming the the coming of the kingdom, but this is not the journey that that kind of proclamation just yet. Mm. In what sense are the disciples to pronounce judgment on those that don't welcome God's kingdom? You know, you know that's the, the shaking of the dust, isn't it? And we, we, you know, that's what we've been expecting throughout Mark is that this coming of the kingdom is happening, that Jesus comes into the world, uh, and these disciples are being sent out to kind of proclaim that coming of the kingdom, and particularly if Israel doesn't accept that, what what's the consequence of that? It's judgment. How do they go and do what Jesus is doing? Well, they're doing what Jesus is doing in that pro- proclamation. You know, they're, um, you know, and they're actually doing it. Look, verse 12, they went out and preached that people should repent, exactly what Jesus has been saying. And that's what we see at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry in chapter 1. Uh, they drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. They are doing the very thing that Jesus did or does. Yeah, and how does the church's mission reflect what the disciples are told to do here? Well, when you see you kind of the mission continue in Acts, this is this is exactly what happens. Wherever the people go, they preach the word and they preach that people should repent. And what happens? Uh, when when the word goes out, when the kingdom comes, miraculous things do happen in those spaces, particularly uh, in places that are, are kind of uh, very gentile kind of areas, and probably you know heaped in um, this this kind of worship of of other beings and things like that. What do you see? Miraculous things do happen. Mm. Okay, so uh, there we are. Let's carry on with chapter six, verses fourteen to thirty-one. Ah, now we meet a really creepy dude. Creepy dude. Yes, King Herod, or one of them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Well, that would worry Herod, I would have thought. Mm. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. 
for it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him. And then we get this backstory. It's like another cinematic flashback. Yeah, this is interesting. Um, Mark should have gone to Hollywood. I mean, I'm not being disrespectful, but he's got a cinematic imagination 2,000 years before cinema. For it was Herod who'd sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he'd married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias's daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. He must have been seriously drunk. Mm. (laughs) And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. There it is. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. Wonderful lot, really. Mm. Yeah, full of the milk of human kindness. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. All right, so we've seen the power come. What contrasting accounts in this chapter? Yeah. I mean, from the... from being rejected by your hometown to sending your people, the 12 out, and then we get this kind of flashback to this debauched drinking party, really, mm. where which just turns cr- utterly creepy and, and t- totally sinister very quickly. We've seen the power come home and the power go out, but what sort of power, what sort of power do we find in these verses? Well, it's a different kind of power altogether, isn't it? It's, a, it's one of authority and violence and, you know, it's really the power of the world. Uh, that you can rule by violence and you can rule by kind of exerting yourself over other people and be oppressive uh, to other people. And so you, you have one, on one side, you've got the kingdom coming. So Jesus talking about you know, sending his people out to, to pr- pronounce the, the kingdom's coming. And here you have a different type of kingdom, one of debauchery, one one of just a weird party. <laughs> you know, yeah. Uh, do, do you remember, and I don't know whether he said this to you, but um, my teacher at, at college, uh, Peter Bolt, who um, had this theory, I think I'm, from, I'm remembering back 20 years, but uh, he, he in the ancient world, the heads had magic. If you, oh, had, okay. if, you had, if you had the head of some prominent prophet or mm. person who had power, you the power was sort of absorbed into you, and um, and he reckoned that might have been what Herodias was up to. So there might have been something kind of occultic or um, mag- magical going on here too behind yeah. us that we don't we we missing perhaps. Now who was this particular Herod? I can't I don't know which Herod I can't remember oh, which Herod, I can't Herod it's which up Herod it is it's up to but it's um it's it's not a pretty family when you when you look at it's not Herod the Great is it. Oh. No, it's, it's 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 further on. It's it's the next one. It's Herod Antipas. I, I think. think it's Antipas. Yeah. You carry on talking, and I'll just check on my phone. Um, <laughs> but when you look at their family, you know, kind of, it's not a pretty sight. You have, um, you know, them killing each other. You have one of the, you know, the brothers uh, plotting against each other to 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 kill one another. And even here, you have, 
you know, one brother has stolen another brother's wife. Uh, but I think it's his half sister anyway. You know, kind of there's this, this, this weird kind of relationship uh, going on here. Uh, you know, that uh, between them all. Yes, uh, Salome was the daughter of Herod II and Herodias, uh, the granddaughter of Herod the Great, and the stepdaughter of Herod Antipas. Yeah, so it's is it, this is Herod Antipas, is it? Yes. Yes. Uh, but I think Herodias is related to, like, I think it's a half sister. Anyway. Yeah, 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 something like that. Yep, yep, yep. That's right. It's all. This is all. Ter- it's all terribly creepy. Anyway. Um, but uh, what's the significance of the fact that the Herods were Edomites, Ian? Well, they're not, you know, they're claiming to be... They were Jewish, presumably. Herod was Jewish. Oh, that, Jewish. I think they have some yeah. Jewish descent somewhere, mm-hmm. but they, they're claiming to be, you know, kind of the Jewish kings, basically. Yeah. And so you've got these two kings set up against each other. You know, who's going to be the true Jewish king? Is it the Herods? Ah, yes. Uh, but the Edomites uh, aren't, you know, technically... You know themselves, they're not Jewish themselves, and in fact, aren't they? Is it Obadiah that their, uh, you know, kind of judgment is pronounced on them for standing back when and laughing when the Babylonians kind of come in and destroy Israel? They're related because aren't they? Uh, who are they descended from? Are they the Esau? Esau, that's right. Sorry. But it's it's definitely a line of people who are opposed to God's people in Scripture, isn't it? Up to a point. Yeah, they're kind of it's an odd yeah it's an odd relationship. They. There's a, and there's a number of points that they pop up uh, in the Old Testament because there's another point when they're about to go into the Promised Land, uh, but Edom block them. They don't let them pass through their land because they think they're going to come and, t- and take them. And against judgment is pronounced on them then too. Yeah. So what does Herod think about Jesus here? Well, he's some magical figure. You know, he's heard of him at least. That that's about all all that we we kind of get. But there is a deep deep sense of you know maybe some magical figure. It doesn't, there's no kind of sense, I don't think, about Herod thinking that Jesus is a threat in some way, though, to his kingship. Uh, the Herods were very suspicious of anyone uh, worried about their kind of, king, their kind oh, they, of kingship. They bumped everybody off. They love to do that. Yeah. You know, and the ancient world is just full of that. Oh, that, absolutely. That, but look at the, the, Roman, the Roman emperors. Yeah. Go and watch I, Claudius. It's full of it, isn't it? Um, I don't know if you get a sense of that, but there's there's definitely a sense of he's a magical figure like John the Baptist, you know, kind of t- to him. Yes. So how does the flashback work here in the narrative then? It's quite interesting, isn't it? You've, you've got a cut scene. So we, we, we've got Jesus and the disciples. The disciples go out. You know, and you know, and then we cut to, to King Herod and kind of him, and then we have a flashback all at the same time. You know, kind of all going on together, which is kind of cool, isn't it? Um, and so we we kind of flashing back to this party that that happened, which we'd rather not know about, really. Yeah. And and so what happens with Salome? She was apparently only uh, supposed to be very young. Well, I think there's definitely a you know. Some something not quite right about about what's going on here, or all, all together is, is there? You know, you got this young girl who's related to, to Herod and he kind of pleases her. You know, pleases him in, in in her dancing. I think it's it's kind of it's very suspicious. You know, kind of what we meant to say. <laughs> it's what we would call dodgy, <laughs> yeah. very dodgy. Yes, yes. So, how does this passage end there then in verse thirty one? Well, you've got. You know, let me just read those last two verses. The apostles gathered round Jesus. And reporting him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going, they did not even have a chance to eat. He said to them, come with me by yourself to a quiet place and get some rest. You've got this kind of opposite hope 
uh, here of another banquet coming. And this is what we see, and we will see in the next passage. These two feasts are kind of played off against each other. But I think the big, the big thing going on there is that when you have Herod's uh, kind of banquet, it's this place of debauchery and you know, kind of people trying to find enjoyment and joy and, and happiness. But what does Jesus say? Come with me to a quiet place and I will give you rest. You know, that thing that, that these people are looking for, which is ultimately rest, Jesus is the one that's able, is going to give it to them. And you're definitely right. The two, uh, the two banquets, the two feasts are juxtaposed. Here we have the, 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 the alleged ruler of Israel, the power person who is uh, operating this deeply debauched court and really ransacking the country for all he can get out of it yep. and um, up to no good. And then we have the, the true king of Israel. As you say, the two things are contrasted. What is Jesus' rest then? Well, it's not, it's not the thing that, that Herod is offering, basically. Uh, and so I think there's, it is significant that Jesus has, is recognizing how busy it has been for them and how he, you know, and the, the, the kind of the, the hurried and the, the hasslenedness of them, you know, people coming and going, and that they just need to, to take a break. So part of that is taking a break. But there's a de- I think there's a deeper sense of that of relationship with Jesus is the, is the rest itself, that when we have relationship with God, there's a deeper sense of rest that we get. In what sense are Jesus' people the mission? Well, what is what is Jesus doing here? He's taking his people and he's saying, you know, kind of, I'm not interested, I'm not so interested in the mission of the kingdom uh, apart from you people that I'm just going to ambitiously push you all to your break. He's actually saying, no, you are what's important. You are the kingdom. Let's go and rest and find that kingdom together uh, in a much deeper kind of sense that, you know, he's not worried about kind of going out and spreading his new, you know, his this news of him coming. He actually, the, the kingdom is the people itself. Yes, he's being quite practical, and he's thinking about how tired the uh, disciples are at this point. I would have thought. Yeah. In what sense is the church not only a place of mission, but also a place of rest? Then, well, it's it has to be the place where we come and find refreshment from the world. You know, constantly we just. Uh, being hassled by the world around us, whether that's, you know, kind of just financially, you know, and, and jobs and the stress of all of those things going on, on around us, suffering and sickness that, that happens and just, just all the demands we have in our life, that the church must be a place of community uh, where we find rest, where we find hope, where we find meaning together and where we can just, you know, find a time just to actually stop uh, and be reminded of who we are as God's people and, and what we're built for. Mm. All right, well, that's today's uh, passage. Now, next time, Ian, we're going to come on and look at two of my favourite passages uh, in Mark, uh, the carrying on with chapter 6, the, the true banquet, the true rest, Jesus feeding the 5,000 in the wilderness, which surely harks back to the Old Testament, and then Jesus walking on the water. So thank you once again, uh, Ian Reid, Rito, the Reverend Ian Reid of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston, North New Zealand. And thank you to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and take care of things behind the scenes. Ian, thank you once again. Thank you, Brent. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. It's godstorypodcast.com.